Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa. So good evening. I've been, you know, choosing to come today because tomorrow is a is a climate demonstration here in Sacramento again at 12 noon at the Capitol and. Uh, so this is a good occasion to come to Sacramento and also you know, speak about uh, what's going on you know, in our worlds. You know, we all live in different worlds, but in one sense also we live you know, together on this planet and we all know that there's a lot of uh, increasing... Uh, Problems in in regards to you know the climate and the environment because the way how we have been living is is just increasingly becoming unsustainable and it looks like you know that if we don't change our ways then we're gonna wipe ourselves off you know the planet and it's not looking very good and you know at the same time we also like at the end of an era and at the beginning of a new era and that's in a time of great uncertainty and and a lot of chaos. You know, for us maybe it's more internally still, you know, but there is many people who are living in the midst of climate chaos already, you know, who are on the move and, you know, who are going through a lot of hardship. And, And for us maybe it's more like internally currently still, but you know, it's just a matter of time when our external lives also will be really impacted by this. And, uh, you know, and in these times the Dhamma is in particular very precious because it gives us something to orient ourselves with in the midst of lots of things, you know, which are difficult to open to. And... Uh, you know, they've been uh, saying that I'd like to speak about feminine perspectives in Buddhism because there's quite a few very well-known uh, teachers, you know, in, in Theravada Buddhism who are very outspoken on this, and in particular it's Bhikkhu Bodhi and uh, also Venerbanaleo. They are both, you know, very well-known uh, Practitioners and also prolific writers. Bhikkhu Bodhi has translated the whole Theravada canon into English. There's lots of books available from him, and also Venerbanaleo, the last 10 years or so, is also very coming up with lots of uh, books on what's called early Buddhism, trying you know to distill what is really the essence of early Buddhism. And both of those monks are also on the forefront of supporting. Uh, higher ordination for women. So it looks like, you know, the monks who are very 
in tune with what's needed in terms of global awakening, in terms of climate change. At the same time, they're also very much aware about the importance you know, to bring feminine perspectives into the way how the Buddhist teaching is taught. And that's a very interesting combination because there's also other monks who are not speaking out about climate and they don't see uh, that as part of practice and they at the same time they're also not interested in supporting women for higher ordination so there seems to be a correlation between those two things and and I thought that's very telling really and uh, so I wanted to you know read to you a little bit from an, an article by Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi which he it's, it comes from a talk he has given at the beginning of this year of 2019 at a conference in India. And he's speaking mainly you know, to an Asian audience, to, mainly to Asian monks actually, but I, I thought it's a very interesting way how he looks at the importance you know, of, of bringing feminine perspective into Buddhism. I just read a few paragraphs. And he says here, I personally believe that for Buddhism to thrive and realize its potential, it needs to be nourished, enriched, and renewed by feminine perspectives. To give space for feminine voices, especially on such crucial matters as social justice and care for the natural environment. I would say that the full liberation of women in all spheres of life is critical to the survival of human civilization. From the dawn of history down to the present, the primary driving forces of civilization have been male attitudes, male values, male activities. I believe that the unchecked dominance of masculine values has been pushing humanity close to the edge of self-annihilation. To draw us back from the precipice, we need to listen to women. Generalizations are always dangerous, but I would posit three values deeply rooted in the masculine mind that have largely determined the course of human history. These are conquest, competition, and extraction. In contrast to these masculine attitudes, I believe the future of life on Earth requires a shift toward more feminine values. I will enumerate this as threefold as well, as correctives to the extreme masculine values. In place of conquest, we need to adopt the spirit of collaboration. In promoting a culture of peace and mutual understanding between peoples of different nations, races, ethnicities, and religious beliefs. In place of competition, we need cooperation. In building a society governed by more egalitarian ideals, a society that provides everyone with their essential needs, food, healthcare, education, meaningful work, and other basic social services, and in the place of the extractive exploitation of nature's abundant resources, we need an attitude of respect for nature, 
and the sustainable economy leading to the emergence of a culture marked by a deep appreciation for the awe-inspiring, irreplaceable wonders of the natural world. <coughs> it is in promoting and actualizing these life-affirming values that I believe women can make an indispensable contribution to our shared human future. The liberation of women will not only free women from long-standing constraints, it will be indeed a double liberation, freeing men as well from their blind spots and self-destructive impulses. I think this is a very powerful way of you know, defining what needs to happen. Feminine and masculine values doesn't necessarily speak about women and men, but you know, we all have feminine and, ma- and masculine energies in us. And you know, at different times of the evolution of the human species, different energies needs to be come in the foreground because different needs are there. But in this time and age, you know, we need to become more willing, you know, to be receptive and to really listen and see, you know, the consequences of our actions. And, uh, you know, in order to be able to really tune in and really being able to see what is going on, we need to cultivate mindfulness and clear comprehension, you know, the two most important ingredients for meditation. You have just been practicing it like a few minutes ago. And then if we could take that mindfulness and clear comprehension and turn it towards not only our own experience, but also, you know, the consequences of our action, I think, you know, that could be really a way how we can be more connected, you know, with what we are doing because it seems that we are not really knowing what we are doing because otherwise we wouldn't do it. So, and you know, and with this I'm, I'm going to come now to Venom Analio who speaks about mindfulness and this is his latest book which came out last year and he says, Also, mindfulness requires cultivation, being a quality that needs to be established. Such cultivation is not a forceful matter. Here it can be useful to take into consideration that the word sati in the Bali language is feminine. My suggestion would be to relate to sati, to mindfulness, as a feminine quality. In this way, sati can be understood as receptively assimilating with the potential of giving birth to new, to new perspectives. So, you know, if we would really pay attention, it would change us. You know, and that's what, what, motive, what the whole uh, intention is behind meditation is, is, you know, to kind of step out from the thinking mind who constantly puts you know, interpretations onto our experience and be in direct contact with our experience and through that direct contact we bec- you know, we will be changed. Because if we would really see reality as it is, for example, you know, really deeply understanding the workings of impermanence, it would deeply change us. And in the Pali canon, those 
you know, those moments of really deeply seeing which change us permanently are called the four stages of of insight. First one, stream entry. Second one, uh, once returner, non-returner, or fully enlightened arahant. So, you know, if our practice is really powerful, it indeed can change us permanently. And that would mean, you know, that we will permanently also relate in a different way. Because, you know, our conditioning gets increasingly, you know, deconstructed and let go of, you know. Because the whole journey, you know, in the Pali Canon, how it is described, it's not about gaining anything, but it's about letting go of all of those layers of assumptions and projections, you know, we have been accumulating through conditioning. And it's about, you know, letting them go through insight. And that can only happen, you know, by, as Werner Manario says so very well here, you know, receptively assimilating what's really going on and through that then giving birth to new ways of seeing. And there's also this Pali word uh, which is very often featured in the, in the scriptures called Yoniso Manasikara, which means wise reflection. And the word Yoni in Pali means uh, womb. And it means that going back to the source, going back to what's really happening rather than being stuck in our stories about what's happening. And, you know, currently we are at the, you know, we are still all very much stuck in consumerist stories. We are maybe at the end of, you know, of the patriarchal era because it just really doesn't work very well. No offense, please, but when it was just an evolutionary stage, you know, which has to come to an end because everything is impermanent. And then, you know, seeing how can we balance it out, how can we be more capable, you know, in really allowing ourselves to be taught by life itself, you know, allowing life to speak for itself rather than speaking for it. Because it wasn't very. It isn't very successful anymore. It just doesn't work. And he speaks further on here. Right away from the moment of waking up in the morning, our good friend Sati can already be there, as if waiting for us. She is ready to accompany us throughout the rest of the day, encouraging us to stay receptive and open, soft and understanding. She never gets upset when we happen to forget about her. As soon as we remember her, she is right there to be with us again. Visualizing the practice in terms of a coming back to the presence of a good friend helps to avoid mistaking sati for a forceful type of hyper-attentiveness that requires strained effort in order to be maintained. Instead, being in her presence carries the flavors of an open receptivity and a soft alertness to whatever is taking place. And this is exactly, you know, this open receptivity and soft alertness, which we need to train ourselves in. 
and the most important, you know, insight which can really help us to step out of this huge misunderstanding of, you know, being separate entities. The, you know, what's called in the Pali Canon, not self, and what's called in other schools of Buddhism, emptiness. You know, empty of, of a self doesn't mean, you know, that we don't exist. We do exist. I can see you and you can see me, but we exist different than from what we think we exist. We are processes in constant exchange, you know, with our environment and also in constant exchange with each other. And, you know, whatever we put in the environment is going to come back to us. And, you know, this insight into emptiness and not-self is a very important insight if we as a species do not make that step then probably you know that's probably the end of us really if we are not able to understand how much we are in constant exchange with everything around us through eating through breathing through whatever we are doing every day we cannot escape that truth there's no way we can escape that So, you know, using the practice to make ourselves receptive to the truth, that's what we really need to do. So uh, the practice is not just about, you know, us and having like a, maybe a little bit less stress in our lives, but it's, a, it's really a stepping stone we as a species need to be able to make. I think it's a very powerful time to consider that. And, you know, we can't willfully get there. That's, you know, that's not how practice really works. Because practice is all about letting go and forcefully going about practice doesn't work. Because, you know, that will just cut us really more off from what's really happening. So it's, it's about you know, finding ways of supporting ourselves so that we can actually stay open and, and not need to turn away from what is happening. And at the same time also, you know, not batting of more than we can chew, so it's it's like an art and a science, really, where we need to find the right balance. And you know, one way of speaking about that balance is about you know having those masculine traits and the feminine traits and finding a balance by bringing them both together and within ourselves, you know, and also in our societies, in our culture, you know, making space for those voices which have been pushed into the background for a long time. And, and I find it very inspiring, you know, to have, have these two monks I have just been reading from their work that they are so clear about that. Because Buddhism also, you know, has, has evolved in a, in a time which is, you know, 2,500, 2,560 years ago, where patriarchy was very 
much more dominant than it is now and you know where women were considered you know to be a possession of men and women couldn't do many many things which so a lot has changed since then you know but there's still some very basic values how we relate to nature which haven't changed enough well at the same time you know our powers in terms of technology have increased to the extent that we can in various ways wipe ourselves off the planet nowadays so to you know to take the practice and bring it into that arena i think it's very important because there is nothing else you know really we have got which can help us to you know make steps in the right direction and it's definitely you know connected with a lot of uncertainty and it's not very comfortable it's it's very stressful really because it really takes us to the edge you know but in order for transformation to happen we have to be willing you know to go to the edge and we can see that you know in in a personal transformation through the meditation you know if we are not able to stay with the emotional baggage which you know is unpacked through the practice then transformation is not going to happen you know then we might have might, might just feel a little bit better you know when we go after the meditation session but then it if it doesn't have really a transformational effect on our emotional capacity you know to open to that which we don't like then it's not going to really you know deliver what it actually can deliver this practice but only you know if we learn to be willing to uh, open to unpleasant feeling and that's what's very difficult for many many of us including myself you know that requires a lot of uh, you know really dedication to the practice and really knowing why you are practicing that's why I was also saying you know at the beginning of the sitting to just remember you know why why have you come here today or why do you sit why do you meditate what's the reason for it is it just because it's a cool thing to do or it's like a fashionable thing to do or you don't know else what to do or you just want to feel a little bit better and things like that or do you really want to take advantage of this teaching you know which has survived for so many centuries because it works so and i hope you know that some of you are having time tomorrow at noon to come to the climate march and join Diane and me there and, and many other people and some of the nuns from my monastery will also come and just really you know instead of having the practice you know as a little thing in our lives which we do just put the life inside the practice
and then you know do the best we can and let go and at the same time also you know knowing that we are all together in this and you know this uh, peers sangha you know buddhist sangha or sacramental insight meditation sangha And really knowing that this this teaching can help us, you know, to find meaning even in very difficult situations. Because, you know, the evolutionary process isn't just about us. But we do have a certain amount of agency inside of it. And the practice can help us, you know, to understand how to act. And and the easiest way is to by just investigating, you know, the repercussions of our actions and then see, do we like those repercussions or don't we? The same way, you know, how you, if you've had children, you know, you teach them in that way. And... And now we have to just kind of, you know, wake up to a much bigger context and, and use the practice <coughs> as a way to stabilize ourselves inside of that process. <coughs> so I think that's, you know, what I'd like to share with you not in order to kind of, you know, make you feel uncomfortable or anything, but if you do feel uncomfortable, then that's just the way it is. And maybe, you know, that motivates you to show up tomorrow at noon at the Capitol, and if you can't come tomorrow, there will be many other opportunities. Maybe you can come at another time. You know, we still have uh, some time left, and if, if there's any questions or comments or if you want to share something, then that would be a good time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.